Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. This is the continued reading of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by the great Douglas Adams, which has got to the point where it is no longer that book, but is now Life, the Universe, and Everything. At this particular part in the plot, we are reviewing the situation, the creation of the game of cricket, which is not as one may have thought. We are being entertained by an historical video, so to speak, of an advert. The voiceover is telling us all about the thing on sale. The three pillars, thundered the man. The steel pillar which represented the strength and power of the galaxy. Searchlights seared out and danced crazy dances up and down the pillar on the left, which was clearly made of steel or something very like it. The music thumped and bellowed. The Perspex Pillar, announced the man, representing the forces of science and reason in the galaxy. Other searchlights played exotically up and down the right-hand transparent pillar, creating dazzling patterns within it and a sudden inexplicable craving for ice cream in the stomach of Arthur Dent. And, the thunderous voice continued, the wooden pillar, representing, and here his voice became just very slightly hoarse, with wonderful sentiments, the forces of nature and spirituality. The lights picked out the central pillar. The music moved bravely up into the realms of complete unspeakability. Between them, supporting, the voice rolled on, approaching its climax, the golden bell of prosperity and the silver bell of peace. The whole structure was now flooded with dazzling lights, and the music had now, fortunately, gone far beyond the limits of the discernible. At the top of the three pillars, the two brilliantly gleaming bales sat and dazzled. There seemed to be girls sitting on top of them, or maybe they were just meant to be angels. Angels are usually represented as wearing more than that, though. Suddenly there was a dramatic hush in what was presumably meant to be the cosmos and a darkening of the lights. There is not a world, thrilled the man's expert voice, not a civilized world in the galaxy where this symbol is not revered even today. Even in primitive worlds it persists in racial memories. This it was that the forces of cricket destroyed, and this is that that now locks their world away until the end of eternity. And with a flourish, the man produced in his hands a model of the wicket gate. Scale was terribly hard to judge in this whole extraordinary spectacle, but the model looked as if it must have been about three foot high. Not the original key, of course. That, as everyone knows, was destroyed, blasted into the ever-whirling eddies of space-time continuum and lost forever. This is a remarkable replica, hand-tooled by skilled craftsmen, lovingly assembled using ancient craft secrets into a memento you will be proud to own, in memory of those who fell and in tribute to the galaxy, our galaxy, which they died 
to defend. Slarty Bartfast floated past again at this moment. Found it, he said. We can lose all this rubbish, just don't nod, that's all. Now let us bow our heads in payment, intoned the voice, and then said it again, much faster and backwards. Lights came and went, the pillars disappeared, the man gabbled himself backwards into nothing, the universe snappily reassembled itself around them. You'll get the gist, said Slarty Bartfast. I'm astonished, said Arthur, and bewildered. I was asleep, said Ford, who floated into view at this point. Did I miss anything? They found themselves once again teetering rather rapidly on the edge of an agonisingly high cliff. The wind whipped out from their faces and across the bay on which the remains of one of the greatest and most powerful space battle fleets ever assembled in the galaxy was briskly burning itself back into existence. The sky was a sullen pink, darkening via rather curious colour to blue and upwards to black. Smoke billowed down out of it at an incredible lick. Events were now passing back by them almost too quickly to be distinguished, and when a short while later a huge star battleship rushed away from them as if they'd said boo, they only just recognised it as the point at which they'd come in. But now things were too rapid. A video-tactile blur which brushed and jiggled them through centuries of galactic history, turning, twisting, flickering. The sound was a mere thin trill. Periodically, through the thickening jumble of events, they sensed appalling catastrophes, deep horrors, cataclysmic shocks, and these were always associated with certain recurring images. The only images which ever stood out clearly from the avalanche of a tumbling history, a wicked gate, a small hard red ball, hard white robots, and also something less distinct, something dark and cloudy. But there was also another sensation which rose clearly out of the thrilling passage of time. Just as a slow series of clicks, when speeded up, will lose the definition of each individual click and gradually take on the quality of a sustained and rising tone, so a series of individual impressions here took on the quality of a sustained emotion. And yet, not an emotion. If it was an emotion, it was a totally emotionless one. It was hatred, implacable hatred. It was cold, not like ice is cold, but like a wall is cold. It was impersonal, not as a randomly flung fist in a crowd is impersonal, but like a computer-issued parking summons is impersonal. And it was deadly. Again, not like a bullet or a knife is deadly, but like a brick wall across a motorway is deadly. And just as a rising tone will change in character and take on harmonics as it rises, so again this emotionless emotion seemed to rise to an unbearable, if unheard, scream and suddenly seemed to be a scream of guilt and failure. And then it stopped. They were left standing on a quiet hilltop on a tranquil evening. The sun was setting. All around them, softly undulating green countryside rolled off gently into the distance. Birds sang about what they thought of it all, and the general opinion seemed to be good. A little way away could be heard the sound of children playing, and a little further away than the apparent source of that sound could be seen in the dimming evening light the outlines of a small town. 
The town appeared to consist mostly of fairly low buildings made of white stone. The skyline was of gentle, pleasing curves. The sun had nearly set. As if out of nowhere, music began. Slarty Bardfast tugged at a switch, and it stopped. I will tell you about it, he said quietly. The place was peaceful. Arthur felt happy. Even Ford seemed cheerful. And they walked a short way in the direction of the town, and the informational illusion of the grass was pleasant and springy under their feet, and the informational illusion of the flowers smelt sweet and fragrant. Only Slarty Balfour seemed apprehensive and out of sorts. He stopped and looked up. It suddenly occurred to Arthur that coming as this did at the end, so to speak, or rather the beginning of all the horror that they had just blurredly experienced, something nasty must be about to happen. He was distressed to think that something nasty could happen to somewhere as idyllic as all this. He glanced too. There was nothing in the sky. They're not about to attack here, are they? he said. He realised that this was merely a recording he was walking through, but he still felt alarmed. Nothing is about to attack here, said Slarty Bartfast in a voice which unexpectedly trembled with emotion. This is where it all started. This is the place itself. This is cricket. He stared up into the sky. The sky from one horizon to another, from east to west, from north to south, was utterly and completely black. Chapter 9 Stomp, stomp. Were Pleased to be of service. Shut up. Thank you. Stomp, 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 stomp. Were Thank you for making a simple door very happy. Hope your diodes rot. Thank you. Have a nice day. Stomp, 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 whirr. It is my pleasure to open for you, Zarkov, and my satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done. I said Zarkov. Thank you for listening to this message. Stomp, 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 whop. Zayford stopped stomping. He'd been stomping around the Heart of Gold for days, and so far no door had said WAP to him. He was fairly certain that no door had said WAP to him now. It was not the sort of thing doors said. Too concise. Furthermore, they were not enough doors. It sounded as if a hundred thousand people had said WAP, which puzzled him because he was the only person on the ship. It was dark. Most of the ship's non-essential systems were closed down. It was drifting in a remote area of the galaxy, deep in the inky blackness of space. So which particular hundred thousand people would turn up at this point and say a totally unexpected whop? He looked about him. Up the corridor and down the corridor, it was all in deep shadow. There were just the very few dim pinkish outlines of the doors which glowed in the dark and pulsed whenever they spoke, though he had tried every way he could think of to stop them. The lights were off, so that his heads could avoid looking at each other. Neither of them was currently a particularly engaging sight, and nor had they been since he had made the error of looking into his soul. It had indeed been an error. It had been late one night, of course. It had been a difficult day, of course. There had been soulful music playing on the ship's sound system, of course. And he had, of course, been slightly drunk. 
In other words, all the usual conditions which bring on a bout of soul-searching had applied, but it had, nevertheless, clearly been an error. Standing now, silent and alone in the dark corridor, he remembered the moment and shivered. His one head looked one way and his other the other, and each decided that the other was the way to go. He listened but could hear nothing. All there had been was the warp. It seemed an awfully long way to bring an awfully large number of people just to say one word. He started nervously to edge his way in the direction of the bridge. There, at least, he would feel in control. He stopped again. The way he was feeling, he didn't think he was an awfully good person to be in control. The first shock of that moment, thinking back, had been discovering that he actually had a soul. In fact, he'd always more or less assumed that he had one, as he had a full complement of everything else, and indeed two of some things, but suddenly actually to encounter the thing lurking there deep within him had given him a severe jolt. And then to discover, this was a second shock, that it wasn't the totally wonderful object which he felt a man in his position had a natural right to expect had jolted him again. Then he had thought about what his position actually was, and the renewed shock had nearly made him spill his drink. He drained it quickly before anything serious happened to it. He then had another quick one to follow the first one down and check that it was all right. Freedom, he said aloud. Trillian came onto the bridge at that point and said several enthusiastic things on the subject of freedom. I can't cope with it, he said darkly, and sent a third drink down to see why the second hadn't reported on the condition of the first. He looked uncertainly at both of her and preferred the one on the right. He poured a drink down his other throat, with the plan that it would head the previous one off at the pass, join forces with it, and together they would get the second to pull itself together. Then all three would go off in search of the first, give it a good talking to, and maybe a bit of a sing as well. He felt uncertain as to whether the fourth drink had understood all that, so he sent down a fifth to explain the plan more fully, and a sixth for moral support. "'You're drinking too much,' said Trillian. His heads collided, trying to sort out the four of her he could now see into a whole position. He gave up and looked at the navigation screen and was astonished to see a quite phenomenal number of stars. "'Excitement and adventure and really wild things,' he muttered. "'Look,' she said in a sympathetic tone of voice and sat down near him, "'it is quite understandable that you're going to feel a little aimless for a bit.' He boggled at her. He'd never seen anyone sit on their own lap before. "'Wow,' he said. He had another drink. "'You finished the mission you've been on for years.' "'I haven't been on it.' I've tried to avoid being on it. You've still finished it? He grunted. There seemed to be a terrific party going on in his stomach. I think it finished me, he said. Here I am, safe on Beeblebrox. I can go anywhere, do anything. I have the greatest ship in the known sky. A girl with whom things to be working out pretty well. Aren't they? As far as I can tell, I'm not an expert in personal relationships. Trillian raised her eyebrows. I am, he added, one hell of a guy. I can do anything I want, only I just don't have the faintest idea what. He paused. 
One thing, he further added, has suddenly ceased to lead to another, in contradiction of which he had had another drink and slid gracelessly off his chair. Whilst he slept it off, Trillian did a little research into the ship's copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It had some advice to offer on drunkenness. Go to it, it said, and good luck. It was cross-referenced to the entry concerning the size of the universe and the ways of coping with that. Then she found the entry on Han Wavell, an exotic holiday planet and one of the wonders of the galaxy. Han Wavell is a world which consists largely of fabulous ultra-luxury hotels and casinos, all of which have been formed by the natural erosion of wind and rain. The chances of this happening are more or less one to infinity against Little is known of how this came about because none of the geophysicists, uh, probability statisticians, meteoroanalysts or bizarrologists who are so keen to research it can afford to stay there. Terrific, thought Trillian to herself. And within a few hours, the great white running shoe ship was slowly powering down out of the sky beneath a hot, brilliant sun towards a brightly coloured sandy spaceport. The ship was clearly causing a sensation on the ground, and Trillian was enjoying herself. She heard Zaphod moving around and whistling somewhere in the ship. "'How are you?' she said over the general intercom. "'Fine,' he said brightly. "'Terribly well.' "'Where are you?' "'In the bathroom. What are you doing?' "'Staying here.' After an hour or two, it became plain that he meant it, and the ship returned to the sky without having once opened its hatchway. Hey-ho, said Eddie the computer. Trillian nodded patiently, tapped her fingers a couple of times and pushed the intercom switch. I think that enforced fun is probably not what you need at this point. Probably not, replied Zaphod from wherever he was. I think a bit of physical challenge would help draw you out of yourself. Whatever you think, I think, said Zaphod. Recreational impossibilities was a heading that caught Trillian's eye when a short while later she sat down to flip through the guide again, and as the heart of gold rushed at improbable speeds in an indeterminate direction, she sipped a cup of something undrinkable from the neutromatic drink dispenser and read about how to fly. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say on the subject of flying. There is an art, it says, or rather, a knack to flying. The knack lies in learning how to throw yourself at the ground and miss. Pick a nice day, it suggests, and try it. The first part is easy. All it requires is simply the ability to throw yourself forward with all your weight and the willingness not to mind that it's going to hurt. That is, it's going to hurt if you fail to miss the ground. Most people fail to miss the ground, and if they are really trying properly, the likelihood is that they will fail to miss it fairly hard. Clearly, it's the second point, the missing, which presents the difficulties. One problem is that you have to miss the ground accidentally. It's no good deliberately intending to miss the ground because you won't. You have to have your attention suddenly distracted by something else when you're halfway there so that you are no longer thinking about falling or about the ground or about how much it's going to hurt if you fail to miss it. 
It is notoriously difficult to prize your attention away from these three things during the split second you have at your disposal. Hence, most people's failure and their eventual disillusionment with this exhilarating and spectacular sport. If, however, you are lucky enough to have your attention momentarily distracted at the crucial moment by, say, a gorgeous pair of legs, tentacles, pseudopodia, according to phylum and or personal inclination, or a bomb going off in your vicinity, or by suddenly spotting an extremely rare species of beetle crawling along a nearby twig, then in your astonishment you will miss the ground completely and remain bobbing just a few inches above it in what might seem to be a slightly foolish manner. This is the moment for superb and delicate concentration. Bob and fruit, float and bob. Ignore all considerations of your own weight and simply let yourself waft higher. Do not listen to what anybody says to you at this point because they are unlikely to say anything helpful. They are most likely to say something along the lines of Good God, you can't possibly be flying. It is vitally important not to believe them or they will suddenly be right. Waft higher and higher. Try a few swoops, gentle ones at first, then drift above the treetops, breathing regularly. Do not wave at anybody. When you have done this a few times, you will find the moment of distraction rapidly becomes easier and easier to achieve. You will then learn all sorts of things about how to control your flight, your speed, your manoeuvrability, and the trick usually lies in not thinking too hard about whatever you want to do, but just allowing it to happen as if it was going to anyway. You will also learn how to land properly, which is something you will almost certainly cock up, and cock up badly on your first attempt. There are private flying clubs you can join which help you achieve the all-important moment of distraction. They hire people with surprising bodies or opinions to leap out from behind bushes and exhibit and or explain them at the crucial moments. Few genuine hitchhikers will be able to afford to join these clubs, but some may be able to get temporary employment at them. Trillian read this longingly, but reluctantly decided that Zaphod wasn't really in the right frame of mind for attempting to fly, or for walking through mountains, or for trying to get the Brantus Vogren Civil Service to acknowledge a change of address card, which were the other interesting things listed under the heading Recreational Impossibilities. Instead, she flew the ship to Alasimania Seneca, a world of ice, snow, mind-hurting beauty and stunning cold. The trek from the snow plains of Liska to the summit of the ice crystal pyramids of Sastanua is long and gruelling, even with jet skis and a team of Seneca snowhounds. But the view from the top, a view which takes in the stin glacier fields, the shimmering prism mountains, and the far ethereal dancing isolates is one which first freezes the mind and then slowly releases it to hitherto unexperienced horizons of beauty. And Trillian, for one, felt that she could do with a bit of having her mind slowly released to hitherto unexperienced horizons of beauty. They went into a low orbit. There lay the silver-white beauty of Alsomania Seneca beneath them. Zaphod stayed in bed, with one head stuck under a pillow and the other doing crosswords till late into the night. Trillian nodded patiently again, 
counted to a sufficiently high number and told herself that the important thing now was just to get safe on talking. She prepared, by dint of deactivating all the robot kitchen synthematics, the most fabulously delicious meal she could contrive. Deliciously oiled meals, scented fruits, fragrant cheeses, fine Aldebaran wines. She carried it through to him and asked if he felt like talking things through. Zarkov, said Zaphod. Trillian nodded patiently to herself, counted to an even higher number, tossed the tray lightly aside, walked to the transport room, and just teleported herself the hell out of his life. She didn't even program any coordinates. She hadn't the faintest idea where she was going. She just went. A random row of dots flowing through the universe. Anything, she said to herself as she left, is better than this. Good job too, muttered Zaphod to himself, turned over and failed to go to sleep. The next day he restlessly paced the empty corridors of the ship, pretending not to look for her, though he knew she wasn't there. He ignored the computer's querulous demands to know just what the hell was going on around here by fitting a small electronic gag across a pair of its terminals. After a while he began to turn down the lights. There was nothing to see. Nothing was about to happen. Lying in bed one night, and night was now virtually continuous on the ship, he decided to pull himself together to get things into some kind of perspective. He sat up sharply and started to pull clothes on. He decided that there must be someone in the universe feeling more wretched, miserable and forsaken than himself, and he determined to set out to find them. Halfway to the bridge it occurred to him that it might be Marvin, and he returned to bed. It was a few hours later than this, as he stomped disconsolately about the darkened corridors swearing at cheerful doors, that he heard the warp said, and it made him very nervous. He leant tensely against the corridor wall, and frowned like a man trying to unbend a corkscrew by telekinesis. He laid his fingertips against the wall and felt an unusual vibration, and now he could quite clearly hear slight noises and could hear where they were coming from. They were coming from the bridge. Computer, he hissed. Hmm, said the computer terminal nearest him, equally quietly. Is there someone on the ship? Hmm, said the computer. Who is it? Hmm, said the computer. What? Hmm, Zaphod buried one of his faces in two of his hands. Oh, Zarquan, he muttered to himself. Then he started up the corridor towards the entrance to the bridge in the dim distance from which more and more purposeful noises were coming and in which the gagged computer terminals were situated. Computer, he hissed again. When I ungag you, remind me to punch myself in the mouth. Either one. Now tell me this. One for yes or two for no. Is it dangerous? Mm. Is it? Mm. You didn't just go mm twice. Mm -mm. Mm. He inched his way up to the corridor as if he'd rather be yarding his way down it, which was true. He was within two yards of the door to the bridge when he suddenly realised to his horror that it was going to be nice to him. And he stopped dead. He was within two yards of the door to the bridge when he suddenly realised to his horror that Ethel was going to be nice to him, and he suddenly stopped dead. He hadn't been able to turn off the door's courtesy voice circuits.
This doorway to the bridge was concealed from view within it because of the excitingly chunky way in which the bridge had been designed to curve around, and he had been hoping to enter unobserved. He leant despondently back against the wall again and said some words which his other head was quite shocked to hear. He peered at the dim pink outline of the door and discovered that in the darkness of the corridor he could just about make out the sensor field which extended out of the corridor and told the door when there was someone there for whom it must open and to whom it must make a cheery and pleasant remark. He pressed himself hard back against the wall and edged himself towards the door, flattened his chest as much as he possibly could to avoid brushing against the very, very dim perimeter of the field. He held his breath and congratulated himself on having lain in bed, sulking for the last few days, rather than trying to work out his feelings on chest expanders in the ship's gym. He then realised he was going to have to speak at this point. He took a series of very shallow breaths and then said as quickly and as quietly as he could, Don, if you can hear me, say so very, very quietly. Would you trust one of these doors? I certainly wouldn't, but Zayford has no choice. We shall find out what happens in the next instalment of Torty Talks. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk.